Welcome to The Highway to Well with Derek Bell. Today we're talking with Mari Ryan, founder and CEO of Advancing Wellness. In this episode, Mari and I discuss the need for organizations to have thoughtful, carefully planned out, long-term strategies that tie their wellness to their organizational values, mission, and purpose. This is best explained by her Dive Hive and Alive Hive themes from her book, The Training Hive, How People-Centric Workplaces Ignite Engagement and Fuel Results. Finally, we'll also dive into personal wellness and address how important it is to our overall happiness and how we can get there. Thank you again for listening. Let's get on the highway to well. Welcome back to the Highway to Well. Today we're talking with Mari Ryan, CEO and founder of Advancing Wellness. And Mari has developed quite a career working with some global powerhouse companies and helping them develop people-centric workplaces. She's also the author of an award-winning book titled The Thriving Hive, How People-Centric Workplaces Ignite Engagement and Fewer Results. And so Mari, I want to first say thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope the weather this time of year in Boston is absolutely glorious for you. Most days, at least on most days. But I wanted to start by asking you to talk about how you found yourself and what your journey for the wellness field was like and, and how you got to what you're doing today. Well, thanks, Derek. I'm delighted to be here. And uh, thanks for that question because it's one I get a lot. It's interesting uh, how I came to be in this field was – I've spent my entire career in business, so I've worked in a variety of different industries and a variety of different jobs. I've done sales, marketing, operations, management, training. So I come from you know a very generalist background. In the early 2000s, I was working as a management consultant, and I was traveling for the work to the client locations uh, that I was doing. And I was traveling 3,000 miles a week or 6,000 miles a week. I was on a project at Microsoft. So I live in Boston, as you mentioned, and I was on a project at Microsoft. So I'd travel from Boston to Seattle, and then I'd stay 10 days. So those were my 3,000-mile weeks. And then one week a month on that project, I flew from Boston to Dublin, Ireland, and back in the same week. Those were my 6,000-mile weeks. (laughs) After almost two years of this kind of travel, I got home and I said, this life sucks. This is not what I want to do with my life. I don't have any relationships in my community. My dog had died six months before. It just, I know, somebody else was living in my house because I didn't want it to be empty. It just was not the life I wanted to lead. I hired a life coach to work with, and we began to explore the elements of the things I'm good at. What could I leverage in my, you know, my entire business career? I had an MBA, so how do I leverage all of that? And it took me a while, but I found, I knew I wanted to do something that might be health related. And I actually thought if people could pay me to walk, then I'd be really happy because I love to walk. But I just didn't think I would be able to earn a living in the style <laughs> to which I'd become accustomed. So I uh, kept exploring and it brought me to the field of uh, workplace wellness 
And actually, this is where our paths probably first crossed. In 2006, I went to the National Wellness Conference mm-hmm. and attended two levels of certification. It was four days. I figured a couple thousand dollars. If I like this, great. You know, I may stick with it. If I don't like it, it's not a lot of time. It's not a lot of money. And I get into this program. And on the first day, I knew that this would be the work that I would do for the rest of my career. I just got it. I said, I get workplaces. I've been in workplaces my entire career. I just got to learn the wellness piece and how hard can that be? Within four weeks of leaving that program, I enrolled in a master's in health promotion program. As I mentioned, I already had an MBA, but I didn't feel like that was the right credential to get me where I wanted to get to in this field. And I spent the next two years working on my, uh, my second master's. And when I get done, I was finishing up my capstone project when I got a call from the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. They needed someone to deliver a training program to Massachusetts employers. And it was kind of a teach to fish model. We were going to teach them to build their own wellness programs. And I said, that's interesting because that's exactly what my capstone project was about. So let's go. And I did that for with them for five years. We put 60 Massachusetts employers through that program and touched over 50,000 Massachusetts employees. And that was, you know, 15 years ago and there's no looking back. So here I am and we're still still doing great stuff and still touching lots of lives. Oh, that is I, that is such a great story. I know we've talked a bit, um, but I, I didn't know every bit of that path. So, and there's two things that make me so happy to, to hear. And one is, so yes, in 2006, I'm so glad and grateful that you got as much that you got out of those certification programs because those, I was at the National Wellness Institute and coordinating those programs and deciding which ones to put on the agenda for the conference. And it makes me so happy to see you here today that you fell in love during those days at the, at the conference. So that was it. That's what got me started. Yeah. And then I also, it's, it's interesting. And over the years of being in the field, it's, I think one of the great things about the wellness fields is that a lot of us start on a different path. And then we find ourselves kind of traveling down a road that we're really unsure of. And so to hear that you were struggling with the travel and the home life and your, your whole kind of like the conceptual whole person um, belief in what you want to live that you, you are uncovering your own wellness first and then deciding, I really, I really want to do this. As you, as you landed in those cert trainings and saw that path and, and so, and for me too, I, I, I'm a law school dropout and I, and I sitting in my first year law classes, constantly shaking my head, wondering, I, I don't, this isn't for me. I, I need to go, I need to find something where I'm helping not only people, but helping cultures. And, and so those are, though I know those are intertwined, but I think when I, when I talk with other professionals around the field is we all have these diverse backgrounds. Well, we have a common thread of wanting to address certain things that we want the world to be better. And so it's, it's almost, I think it's a gift that you're bringing your organizational background, but also your own personal story of wellness to what you're doing today to make sure that you're, you're able to talk to every employee on every level and understand what they might be going through too. So, Well, Derek, you know, when we talk about purpose as one of the dimensions of well-being in in 
the way that we position it in a workplace, we encourage employees and leaders to make sure that they can define a purpose in their organization so that employees feel connected to it. And I think in my own work, and certainly because this is my own company that I founded, I needed to be sure that I was going to be aligned with this purpose every day, that I know that the work that I do impacts the lives of other people and impacts organizations and the way they, you know, create environments for their their employees. And I think that's what we have to be living. That's what motivates me to get out of bed every day and be excited about the work that I do. And, and that connection to purpose, you know, for you as well, I, I have no doubt in the work that you do, you're, you know, it's obvious you're connected to purpose. It's just a clear example of how we have to be in integrity with that in order to be able to do the work we do. Right, right. And that, I think that uh, brings me to something that I wanted to ask and get your feeling on because COVID life has, has, has either brought to the forefront issues that already existed or exposed things that we maybe weren't thinking about at the work site. One thing we know for sure is that this is in an, this the cloud of COVID life is a struggle for everyone. And so in your work with employers and organizations, so getting back to kind of weaving in that concept of purpose, but also mm-hmm. organizational performance and function and employee satisfaction, what are what do you think are the pain points in today's environment and were those and, and how much of that existed prior to COVID and it's just exacerbated or what are we discovering now that we might be able to apply to make our workplaces better as we start to navigate and kind of get through this period of life for us? Well, I think you bring up a very interesting point that COVID has changed our world, obviously, for, for many, many different perspectives. But I have to also say that it's not all negative. While there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of anxiety and, you know, we are all anxious about going outside or being around other people, for many people, their quality of life has actually improved. I've been having conversations with a lot of people over the last few months and listening to people's stories about the ways in which their life is actually better now. So, for example, a friend that I bike with said that he was chronically sleep deprived. So, an attorney had a commute of an hour or so on the train and then walked from the train to the downtown, you know, law office, worked long hours, got back on the train, headed back home, you know, that. And this realization earlier this year that chronic sleep deprivation was a standard part of his life that he just didn't realize until he stopped doing the crazy commute, you know, or the, the person who gave up her law career in, in a large organization to start her own business because she couldn't stand the hour plus commute in Los Angeles that she had. And, you know, sometimes she was spending four hours a day in the car. So those kinds of things where people are working from home, they're in their slippers and comfortable and, you know, coming together in ways that are different. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of concern about how we're connecting with people. But these connections that people have been able to make with their family at a different level, 
So that we have to remember that there are some silver linings. People are spending more time doing uh, self-care and exercising and making connections in their community. There are some silver linings, but certainly there's been a lot of impact within the organizations and making sure that connection, I think connection is probably one of the top elements that we need to be thinking about how our employers really making sure that employees feel connected, that they feel that they're part of something bigger, you know, they're connected to the purpose of the organization. So go back to the purpose conversation, but that they're not suffering from loneliness as a result of the fact that they may not be meeting in person with people. Yeah, I think there, I, I agree. And it's, I think we have these difficult conversations because we all want to be sensitive to some of the issues that are obvious in this environment. One is, one is the sickness and the spread of, of coronavirus. So being sensitive to that and how that's changed the way we work and even in, interact with people and our, our whole social connection has changed. And I also am very sensitive to mental health and what all of that has done to this environment has created or again, exacerbated or created mental health issues for individuals and then as that as that moved on to families and communities and organizations. But but I do think and, and I, I agree that there's been an incredible amount of self reflection and self examination for a lot of us. And and to be fair, few of us had time for that <laughs> prior to last March or last February, March and, and April when things started settling in that this was going to be a long haul experience. But, and that, that too, I, I've been, and I've been doing obviously like this podcast, but I, I did one here locally with some local business owners and people in, in the Stevens Point Wisconsin community and talked about how businesses were pivoting and how, who was really successfully navigating their worlds to react to this environment. And in large part, while there were stresses and the obvious fear of the business impact, for the most part, people were talking about how amazing it is to be home with their family and that they were more present in today. And that is something that I know us in, in our field, we are constantly talking about presence and being present and how important that is to our own well-being and, our, and to everything from work performance to relationships and their overall health and well-being. And so I, I agree with you on that silver lining. And, and it's almost, I don't want to feel guilty about thinking about silver linings in this environment, but I also look at it like we're going to, we are going to come out of this. And what have we learned in this process that makes us stronger and better so that that fingerprint doesn't last long in a negative way, but we're, 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 re we're reacting and we're dynamic too enough to understand that we've maybe built some tools and skills that will help us live happier and better and longer. Yeah, you're so right. And, you know, you're, to your point, I think one of the things that we've seen from the pandemic is that his, the triggers, you know, this has served as a trigger for a couple of things. So one piece you mentioned was the mental well-being concerns. Very big concern for every employer because that impacts the productivity, the ability of the employees to show up. And the stress, the anxiety, the burnout, people aren't taking vacations, they're not stepping away from the computer, the nonstop Zooming, 
we have to really be sensitive to this and employers really need to offer a lot of support around this. The second piece that this is triggered, which I think is, is tied to this, but one that is not, it's starting to get more attention, but really needs some more focus on it. And that's the concern for uh, working families and especially the exodus of working women, mothers in particular, from the workforce as a result of the pandemic. They're pressured with the demands of managing everything in the household, being able to balance work with childcare, with schooling, you know, the homeschooling, whatever the situation may be with regard to the demands that have been put on them. And it's forcing many women out of the workforce in a way that is not good for uh, society in general. So those are two of the triggers that I think the pandemic really is forcing us to examine. Yeah, I, I, I think that is something too. I, I, I have a running list of things that we'll, we'll look at in retrospect and then wonder how did we allow certain things to maybe happen too. And, and yet, what are some of the opportunities that we've created? So, and so the flexibility to work also creates other problems. Um, and that is that we're on meetings all the time or we can't disconnect from work because we're not leaving a physical location. That we're used to. And I don't know to what degree this happens in Massachusetts, but about the exodus of, of women from the workforce too. And here in Wisconsin, where we have our, um, you have your essential and non-essential business environments. And so um, how many of those essential business are manufacturing and those are dominated largely by males. So to your point about women that are at home, that that, that was the traditional household it, what has that done to disrupt that? And how does that impact both families? And I'm, I'm in a fortunate position, both my wife and I are both working from home. So we, we, flip the, we flip the schooling back and forth for our kids on the day that they're not in school, but that's not a case that everyone um, could have. So I feel really fortunate in that respect. And I think that's, that's absolutely something that is going to be critical. And I, I also wonder too, as we, or as, and, and hope being hopeful about our futures as, as we start to get towards the middle of next year and late next year. And, and by then, hopefully there's vaccinations and we're, we're creating or operating more in what we'd like to call a normal environment. But also, too, as people return to work or work expands, is, is to what degree are we going to have a workplace like we had prior to COVID? And then how is that looking today? And so what's that dynamic going to be? Because you, you know, you, you mentioned um, and you yourself about your travel and other people have left their, their jobs because of the travel or they were unsatisfied or had life, life and wellness issues themselves for the amount of time they're commuting and working. And now they're working from home or they've, they've had a modified work environment, they enjoy that and they give them a chance, to, they, get, they get them a chance to at least be more present as we've talked about. So what about the workplace is going to change in the future? And, and what do you see as, as the benefits of, of surviving through some of this for those of us who have been you know, fortunate to have our roles or our jobs and remain somewhat in place, but what is the workplace going to look like in the future? Well, the workplace is going to be hybrid. Everybody's not going to go back. And we can see that as a result of the fact that for many people, they feel like their quality of life has improved. 
But we will also see that employers are recognizing that people don't need to go back. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, until we get to a place where it's fully safe for people, they may not even consider going back. With some of my clients, they're saying that in the future of their workplaces, as few as just 25% might have permanent seats in their workplaces. So I think we're going to live in a hybrid world. We're going to have the people who may be in the office or wherever the physical workplace is, and the rest of the workforce will be working from wherever they choose. And the nice part about that is that flexible aspect of, you know, you get to choose where you want to be. It's so interesting in the last couple of years and actually in in the last couple of weeks as well, I've been doing a a workshop called the Workplace of the Future, which is an ideation session. And in the, the last couple of years when I was doing this and asking the participants to be futurists and tell us what's the number one thing you want to see in the workplace of the future. And we did this from multiple dimensions would include technology, the built environment, uh, employee experience, and culture. And it was so interesting how many times flexibility came up as the number one choice of what they wanted to see in the workplace of the future. Well, doing this in the last couple of weeks with audiences now that are living through COVID, it is also really interesting to see that flexibility still comes up as one of the top topics. So the workplace of the future is definitely going to still have flexibility at the core. Employees want to have that flexibility. They want to be able to choose when they work, perhaps, you know, what hours I want to work. You might live in a different part of the day than I do. I get up early, I exercise, but then I want to be done, you know, earlier in the afternoon. So it's, it's a nice element to be able to give people autonomy to be able to choose the style of working that works with them. And workplaces are going to be accommodating in many cases for that because they have to. This is, this is what the people are demanding now. And in order to be able to you know, engage and retain those employees or attract the new ones that you want to have come higher to your workplace, you're going to have to have that element. Yeah. Yeah. And it also kind of harkens so i think about what are what are the resource allocations now for employees too because prior to covid and and in you know i work for a large organization and it's safe to say that wellness was a confusing initiative for us across the board it was uh, i think there isn't anyone that would just you know say that we shouldn't be doing wellness but the degree at which we did it as a as an associate benefit was tied a little bit too closely just to our benefit plan and that only impacts the people that take the health insurance and so there was a set of a point awarded initiatives there outside of that wellness wasn't necessarily a conceptually or a theme throughout a lot of our associate um i would say well-being initiatives even though even though we weren't using those terms when COVID happened there was a switch that flipped right away. And so it was really wonderful to be in the position I am in this organization that people started asking, Derek, explain wellness to us. So I had the chance to work with, and now now have entrenched a lot of bridges to a lot of parts of the organization. And that's leadership, associate health, 
associate well-being, marketing and communications, and uh, the move the move to be on board with wellness has been great, and it's been very focused on how do we help people on a day-to-day basis get through their lives. So it isn't just exercising for minutes or eating the right food, but it's also how can I manage my schedule throughout the day? Well, how do I manage my stress? How do I cope with Zoom fatigue? Like we talked, like you mentioned earlier, those resources they should have been in place prior to COVID. But for most organizations, what I hope is that they're in place now because previously, if we talk about well-being or mental well-being, that was often in this narrow scope of what your EAT program provides. And that is a, a small group of your workforce that utilizes those resources. So if, if we say on a, on a heavy day of EAT use, 5% of your employee population is using it, that leaves 95% that are questioning maybe their own well-being, but they haven't, they haven't gotten to the point that they feel they need to contact or have been referred to their EAT yet. Well, we know that they may not be working to their full satisfaction. We know from doing assessments on absenteeism and presenteeism that there is a wealth of, of opportunity in helping people get through their day. And that's different than just helping them exercise more or eat right, but it involves how they feel about their work and how they feel about their organization. And going back to your point that you brought up initially about purpose, is, is my daily work, am I aligning what I'm doing with my purpose? Do I feel good about where I am in this organization. So I wanted to ask you, so you help organizations perform and thrive. And so how, what, what are successful organizations doing and, and what do they need to do to move forward? I know we've touched on a couple of those, but I'm wondering what else, as you, since you work in those groups, what else might we need to be looking for headed into the future here? Well, it's a great question, Derek. And I think the, the piece that at the foundation of this is that organizations don't wait for a crisis like we're in now to be able to think about the well-being of their teams. It starts with having a really well thought out strategy. And this is the work that I do with clients is to really help them develop a strategy for the well-being of their workforce that integrates with the culture of their workplace, the values that they espouse in, in their workplace, how it links to the purpose of you know, that organization and their mission. And through that strategy, what we really can do is create that culture that shows the employees that the organization cares for them. And once you've got that strategy in place, it's the element of having a really well thought out approach. You know, it helps us really identify why we're doing things. You know, one of the things you and I have talked about in the past is this idea that, you know, the wellness industry gets beat up a lot because they say, oh, you know, it doesn't produce any ROI and it doesn't produce any results and we're spending a lot of money and it's, you know, these programs aren't any good, they don't work. And part of the reason we get beat up on that is because people are doing programs and initiatives without really having done their homework. So they haven't done the strategy work. They haven't thought about why are we doing this? They haven't thought about what the employees both need and want, because you can't just say, well, here's the risk factors and we've got to address these risk factors. You really have to understand what people want to do, because we all know that you have to be intrinsically motivated to make change in behavior. And if people are being told, 
you should do this, as opposed to asking them what they want to do and then designing programs based on what their interests are, then we're much more, I get this question all the time, you know, how do we increase participation? And I say, ask people what they want to do, you know, do the things they want to do, not the things you think they should be doing. You know, we shouldn't be shooting on people. We should be doing things that are going to motivate them and encourage them and help them have small wins. So I believe it all starts with the strategy. If you don't have a well-thought-out strategy, then chances are you're not going to succeed. Yeah, exactly. I, I, love, I love, it's just these, these common reminders about, so, and, and, we, and we've talked about this where wellness professionals, sometimes we're our own worst enemy because we create a program that, we've, that we theoretically think will work, but it doesn't fit that culture. And then it creates that negative narrative. And now companies will say, well, that didn't work. So now we're not going to, we're not going to do well unless you're, right. and that's, that's, that's a design flaw in our work. And so to your point about what are, what are those, what should we be doing? Well, we should be doing our homework, first of all, as, as you point out, not just relying on risk management because we did a health risk assessment, but let's talk about the culture and find out what, what it is that employees want, what, what might they want to do? And, and I love when you say don't should. And then also I love the concept of just do no harm. Do no harm first with your wellness programming. And that is, those are sometimes, those are the two things we quickly overlook because we eagerly think everyone wants to live well, but our concept is different than theirs. And we forget that sometimes. And so it's really good to go back and start over and, and that's probably, you know, when you talk about the thriving hive and people-centric workplaces in your book, that those are key concepts about people-centric. And organizations sometimes, they even forget that even if they think they are being people-centric, it's because they have a hierarchy that is usually a top-down. And, and then us on our end doing wellness programming or try to helping them, we end up in these, in these um, awkward places where we want we want to help people move forward, but we're not sure that we've got all the tools yet to do that. You nailed it, Derek, when you said that it's got to fit with the culture. And that's actually what is my book is all about. It's written as a parable and it's set in two beehives. One is the dive hive and the other is the alive hive. And you and I have probably both worked and had experiences in our, our careers where we've worked in both a, an alive hive and a dive hive. But the idea with the dive hive is that organizations often are focused around making the numbers, making profit, uh, fulfilling shareholder you know, desires and investor needs. When in reality, if that's all that they're focused on, then they may be burning out their people. They, you know, treat them as assets and, you know, just use them up and throw them out when they're done. And that doesn't work. It, it's a, a command and control, you know, almost antiquated kind of approach that really doesn't work anymore. And, and while that's kind of a black and white kind of, you know, description, there's a lot of more gray in reality, we recognize that profit should be an outcome, not the purpose. So when we think about the alive hive, which has a clearly defined purpose that's 
bigger than the organization or the function that you perform. It's about doing something that impacts the world. And in the case of the bees, right, what better thing for the bees to be doing as their purpose than to pollinate, you know, plants so that people can have fruits and vegetables to be able to eat so they can be healthy. And that purpose is bigger, you know, it's, it's aspirational and, and it's bigger. And it's, and, you know, the outcome is when we put those kinds of connections in place so that our workers feel connected to the purpose, they are going to feel motivated. If they're not aligned with purpose, then they're not going to be happy in their jobs. So they need to go find another job. So we need to make sure that there's that connection for the individual that they feel connected to that purpose of the organization so they can feel motivated and, and jazzed about being there to do the work. I, I absolutely love that concept. And, that, and it's a brilliant way of trying to describe the need for culture and the, the components. So you can't just say you want to have a healthy culture and then don't do anything about it. But a healthy culture isn't something that you just say you're going to do, but it's something that is a part of who you are. And it's a part of what you, how you've woven in these different parts to your cultural fabric that then create that overall mission purpose. And then that hopefully leads to everything. So, you know, in your work too. So I want to ask you, like, why do companies struggle with this? <laughs> it sounds like such a, and it sounds like the best way to do everything. It sounds like the best way to run an organization. If you have motivated and, and employees that love what they're doing, the profit margin should be there. So your outcomes should be satisfying. But what is it, or, or when you've worked with a couple of organizations, and you don't have to name who they are, but why do they struggle with this concept? And why do they stay and they may be comfortable just staying and being a dive hive rather than an alive hive. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think part of the reason is financially uh, motivated. We live in a world in which many organizations, in particular those publicly traded organizations, are on these you know short-term achievement cycles. It's about you know achieving month to month, quarter to quarter to be able to produce results. And it's interesting because over the last few years, some of the, the large investment organizations in the United States have started to encourage leaders in public companies to discard that view that they have to be thinking for the long term and they have to be thinking about all shareholders equally not just the investors and those and the recognition that you can't achieve your business objectives without your people. If you're burning out your people, if you're, you know, churning them out and throwing them out when, you know, they're burnt out, you're never going to be able to achieve the kinds of uh, objectives that you hope to. So we really are seeing some thinking that is starting to change and, People are starting to recognize, and I think COVID is actually in some ways helped us with this because the world has stopped to pay attention to health and well-being. You know, we're forced to, right? People are, hundreds of thousands of people are dying. We have to pay attention to this. 
And I think that's starting to give people the realization that if we don't have our health and well-being, we really don't have anything. So it's, it's starting to, to really become much more embedded in that way for organizations to think long-term, to think about the people first, and to recognize you can't achieve anything without them. Uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate your thoughts there. And I think if you, if you focus on health and wellness in the way that um, can fit into your organizational functioning, then the outcomes should be there. And so that is something that we, we kind of almost, it, it, it's as if we on our end kind of take that idea for granted without educating our companies on how do we get there and, and how do we make sure that the wellness, and this is what goes back to, so I'm a programmer in wellness. So if I'm only focusing on weight management programs or 10,000 steps a day, those aren't cultural changing level programs. And so if I'm being asked to provide those, then am I just doing those or do I, am I, do I need to take a step back and think about the culture of the company? And then what else is there? And when, when are we, or where are we fitting in that personal and professional development aspect? So starting getting into those tactics of what good companies do, this, these things are woven in that they don't, it's almost as if they don't have to expressly talk about their wellness programming as much. They just have wellness as part of their, it's embedded into their fabric enough that it's not a siloed program over to the left of everything else, but it's, it's a part of nearly everything and every facet that they're doing. And so I, I think, I hope that that's, that's one of those kind of uh, uh, thoughts that I go through my head and thinking about the, the evolution of organizations. And as you pointed out, that, that this is something that's being echoed in. And when they're, when we're talking about shareholders and investors and company and performance, organizational economic performance, it starts to be thinking long-term. And if we think long-term, we have to rethink how we think about our people. That's a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you, again, you nailed it there because, you know, we can't be thinking about, you know, um, you know I hear this all the time. And, you know, as you know, I, I speak a lot and I consult with organizations in various parts of the country. And I talk with a lot of of well-being practitioners, and I, I hear the, the dilemmas of people saying things like, "Well, my you know my clients or my employer wants to have a return on investment. They want to see you know reductions in healthcare costs or improvements in biometrics or reduction in risk factors." And I'm like, "Stop! Wait! You know you're missing the picture here. You know we we can't necessarily certainly we have to measure, and I'm a huge advocate." Advocate for measuring well-being. Um, that's one of my hallmarks: is how do we measure well-being? But we have to do it in a way that's not just thinking about that short game. You know, it's not did risks go down this year or did our healthcare costs go down this year? There's too many other variables that come into play, and what we need to be thinking about is understanding what the interests of people are. Are, how is this going to motivate individuals for their own personal self-care, for their way that they're feeling about 
showing up and their experience in the organization when they come to work? Do they feel good about it or do they feel like this is just something else that they have to do and they're being forced to do? So it certainly goes to culture and the ways in which we show people we care. It has to be a caring environment. That's when people are going to feel motivated. That's when people are going to feel like, hey, this is, this is a place I want to be and where I want to make, put my time in and make the commitment to what's going on here. Yeah, and, and to that end, too, is that our organizations are also um, both providing us the tools, but they themselves are also building a sense of resiliency so that we don't get thrown off our path because we've developed the skills to weather the storm. And so in your work with employers and, and talking about that, I know resiliency is obviously a, a really um, important topic in today's environment. But again, that's where I asked did COVID just make us pay more attention to it because it's, it's something that we've been talking about for a while and did it, or did it provide that opportunity for us to evaluate whether or not we are a resilient organization and we're creating resilient employees that, um, that can survive and thrive in a dynamic environment like we have today. Well, I think COVID definitely has, shown a light on this uh, particular topic because we recognize that we're here for the long haul. This is, you know, not something that was just going to be over in a short period of time. We have to be prepared to really be able to weather this storm in, in that it's, it's not just a storm, it's, it's a long-term condition. And in thinking about that, we have to think about resilience, not only at the individual level, because, of course, it starts there. We have to have resilient people. And we get resilient people by, you know, helping them recognize the importance of self-care and practices and behaviors that are going to help them bounce back more quickly than, um, than if they weren't resilient. But we also have to think about this at the team level and the organizational level. We need resilient teams. We need people to be able to work together, to support each other, to collaborate in meaningful ways, to communicate transparently so that the team can work cohesively. And when we have resilient teams, we're going to have resilient, we're more likely to have resilient organizations. And those resilient organizations are going to have leaders who recognize what it takes to be able to care for people to support the managers who are leading those teams, to be communicating transparently throughout the organization, and to be acting as role models for what it takes to be able to be a resilient individual. Yeah, it, that's that's one of those things I know throughout this past year when we when we are in whether it's, it's in uh, presentations or. Uh, things like the Idea Collective and Wapala that you and I were were part of or that you were a presenter and I was a participant in. But mm-hmm. oftentimes when we talk about resiliency, we, we just tend to spend a lot of time on the individual. And I love that you're addressing the team part and the organizational part because it, to me, there's a loop. So the individual, sure, we talk about resiliency and what the skill set for that individual um, needs to be in in that in of itself is absolutely important. 
but then we need to we need to make sure that our teams are resilient and th and then that makes like you said the organization's resilient and that's usually because the leadership is insightful and caring empathetic and it's on the checklist of all the traits you want in leaders that usually that's a reflection of how resilient their teams are and how they allow those teams to flourish and communicate like you said communicate transparently be collaborative and and work together and be free to work together without fear and you know and so there's there's some dynamics that come into play there but I, I i do think that that's something that we need to continue to talk about is that team and organizational resiliency um the individual is a part of that but we also know that individuals are are um social connection is an important part of how we view our world and so if our team is resilient then we also know we have some other people we can rely on and learn from and be supported by and support others and that gives us a chance to be empathetic and caring and, and if we can ripple that effect through the organization we end up succeed better i hope <laughs> well i i think you're right and i think you bring up a really good point which is that there are some core skills of empathy and compassion that leaders and managers need to have in order to be able to create these workplaces where the teams and the organization can thrive and be resilient. But empathy and compassion are at the foundation of those. Those exactly. are new skills. They may be new skills for some individuals, but they're essential skills in this world we live in today. Absolutely, absolutely. So Mari, as we, as we get wrapping up here on, on our podcast here, I, I wanna ask you, where do we go from here? You, you and I have covered a lot of ground in this session, but what are some key things that that I, will, I need to be thinking about, or others need to be thinking about as we as we head into our our, our winter here, and, and looking hopefully positively about um, where the world's going to be in a year from now. Well, I think at the core of this is really thinking about what your strategy is and making sure that you have a strategy. And this is, you know, it can't just be thinking up, you know, the, the next shiny object kind of program that comes along is something we should be doing. It really has to be a well thought out strategy. And there are going to be key places that everyone is going to need to focus in the next year or two. And those are going to be around some of the topics we've discussed already. So starting with mental well-being, this is going to be a huge focus and we need to be rethinking policies, benefits, the, the different ways in which we approach this within organizations. So mental well-being has got to be at the top of the list. I'm also seeing that financial well-being is a huge issue where in a, an economy and in, in an economic time frame where Many people are struggling from a financial perspective, and we have to recognize that and we have to support people from the financial perspective as well. The other piece we've already talked about a little bit is this family dilemma that we face, that we really have to be creating family-friendly workplaces so that mothers, fathers, and their children that they have at home are going to be supported in a way that is going to make life work for everybody because for many of them right now that's just not working so the whole idea of family-friendly workplaces and benefits in the workplace that support families is really going to be critical and as we move into this hybrid workplace we're going to need to be thinking about connection how do we create foster 
connection in the workplace. It's different. It's different when we work in a hybrid model. I can't just walk over to the water cooler or you know, stop you and say, oh, let's go grab some lunch. We, we can't do those things in the same way. We can do some things. We can do them differently, but we have to work at it. It has to be intentional. So we have to be thinking about intentional connection and how we manage that in the workplace. Yeah, I agree. And we've spent today talking about a lot of these issues and and it's and that whole point of connection and intentional and authentic communication and connection with each other is is significant and and building our workplaces to thrive, as you say, is let's see what we can do about turning them into alive hives and get away from our dive hives. So we'll hopefully hopefully that alone will create some some better paths for us. I hope so too. Yeah, I just want to say thank you, and and then also the your website and information we'll we'll have in the listing for this um, podcast. But also, so where can people find more information about you and your work? Sure. So my company name is Advancing Wellness. Our website is advwellness.com. And there's information there on all the services we provide, uh, the links to my book, which is The Thriving Hive, How People-Centric Workplaces Ignite Engagement and Fuel Results, which is available on Amazon in ebook, paperback, and also available on Audible. Excellent. Well, thank you, Mari. I, I, uh, I suspect we probably have a lot more that we could talk about. So I'll, I'll be knocking on your door, knocking, sending you a message, um, virtually knocking on your door soon about another chance to talk with you and, and see where we are in, um, in the future here. Derek, thanks so much. It's always a delight to spend time with you. Thank you again. Well, and happy holidays to you. <laughs>